You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of timely topics that matter most to business leaders. To help make sense of these topics and how they'll unfold, we'll sit down with thought leaders and do what we do best at the Conference Board, provide trusted insights for what's ahead. I'm Steve Odlin, the CEO of the Conference Board and the host of this series. And in today's conversation, we're going to discuss the future of the office. What are the pros and cons of the office? With remote work so common, do we still even need offices? And if so, how can they be improved? Joining me today is Bob Johansson, this distinguished fellow at the Institute for the Future and the author of several books, including his latest book, Office Shock, Creating Better Futures for Working and Living. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here, Steve. Uh, So, Bob, the Institute for the Future is, uh, just for our listeners, is a U.S.-based, not-for-profit think tank that was established in the 60s. And it was a spinoff from the RAND Corporation to help organizations plan for the long-term future. And you are called and referred to as a futurist. What does that mean? Do you have a crystal ball somewhere? (laughs) I actually do, but it's sort of a joke. Uh, (laughs) You know, for me, a futurist is someone who thinks future back, where most of us are stuck. We're kind of stuck in the noisy present, and we think present forward. So it tends to be the now and the next and maybe sometime the future. What futurists do is think future first, then next, then now. And for us, the sweet spot, you know, we're the longest running futurist group in the world now, uh, started in 1968. So we've been doing this a long time. Uh, And what we've learned is 10 years out is the sweet spot. It's far enough out to be beyond the normal planning horizon, but close enough in to be practical. And surprisingly, it's actually easier to look 10 years out than it is just one or two years out. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that you have the crystal ball, but I'm disappointed to hear that you don't really use it. I was really hoping to ask you about a few things. But, you know, so basically what you know, what you're doing is you're assembling a lot of data and and then you're projecting that data into the future. You're saying here's here's where we think uh, the world is going and therefore how, you know, how leaders should should think about planning for that. Is that is that a fair um, kind of. Uh, the way the way we would say it is we we think future back uh, to provoke insights and action in the present. So your first question you should always ask a futurist is, have you outlived your forecast? And we have five times over. Um, the way you evaluate a futurist is not does the forecasted future happen? That's the way you'd evaluate a fortune teller. The way you evaluate a futurist is, does our foresight provoke your insight that helps you make better decisions? Now, we do keep track. We've been doing this a long time. And you know, as the longest running futures think tank, we feel like we have a responsibility. Uh, so we track. And out of those 50 years, 60 to 80% of our forecasted futures have actually happened. So we're usually right. But the purpose isn't to be right. For example, our forecasts around climate right now, I hope they don't happen. Uh, And it's successful would be that our forecasts don't happen. So you have to think about foresight, 
insight, action as a continuing cycle. And the foresight is a provocative story, a future backstory that's designed to provoke thought. And we typically do a base forecast and then we do scenarios off the base forecast. Yeah, and 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 that's really important because you know industries are different, and companies are different. You, you mentioned climate that as you know one of the areas that you cover. Can you just tell us you know what is the waterfront? You know what's the range of 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 topics that you look at? Um, you know we're big picture ten year forecasters, so we have a, a focus on health. You know we did a. Um, pandemics appeared in our forecast beginning in 2009. So the, you know, the COVID crisis was not a surprise to us. What was a surprise was the second and third and fourth order effects. So we think a lot about health. We think a lot about food. We think a lot about climate. We just did a big project in the last year on um, climate positive futures for the World Bank. Uh, so we're, we're always looking future back, uh, big picture. My work, I'm a, I'm a sociology PhD by training from Northwestern. Um, I also have an interest in world religions and in kind of the uh, importance of values and meaning and purpose and work. Um, and when I was at Northwestern doing my PhD, the internet started. <laughs> and I got really intrigued with this whole notion of virtual connectivity and how are things going? So right now, I used to run the Institute. Uh, then I asked our board to let me go back to doing what I love to do is write books and uh, do custom forecasts, mostly for CEOs, uh, sometimes for heads of strategy, heads of innovation. And right now I'm focused on the, the future of work. So, you know, that leads us to your new book and it's called Office Shock. And you you make a lot of uh, interesting estimates or or forecasts about what's going to happen in the future related to the office. But you say that the office is both a place and a process. And you say it's offices and officing. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So the word office is interesting. It's it's you know the the place where we work and the and the ways we work. But office is for most people a building. You, know, you think of the office building. And what we're trying to do in this book, and again, think future back about the whole notion of offices, there's office, the building, the noun, and then officing, the process, the verb. And then there's, we've coined a new word in the book, the office verse, which is essentially the metaverse applied to offices. So it's the anytime, any place, space, in which we work. And that's the future we're exploring of not just office buildings, but of officing the way we work and of the office verse, which is how virtual reality and augmentation and other new tools for virtual working, how they can enter the mix uh, to create an environment that helps us work better and 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 also helps us live better this this mix this navigation um it's really it's really not a balance for most people uh this navigation between work and private life um that's something that we're going to have much more capability to do a better job with so it's not just about productivity it's about better living as well yeah and we you know we need to make clear to our listeners we're talking about an office environment and, you know, that relates to a smaller, you know, less, you know, a, a smaller portion of, of jobs in the U.S. or around the world than the total. So, you know, a lot of people are, are conflating, uh, you know, what hybrid and remote 
work can be as it relates to the office versus everything else. You can't construct a building virtually, as an example, in some of the services. <laughs> so, and, yeah. and you're not you're not saying that. So it's just we have to be very clear that we're talking about one type of work here. You know, I think that's right, and and I actually hope. Uh, the next two books. Uh, the next one is going to be called the Factory Verse. <laughs> you know, we work with uh, Westrock, for example, the world's largest paper company, and with Borg Warner, the world's largest parts supplier, especially now for electric vehicles. Um, you know, they're all about factories. So for them, the center of life is not the office; it's the factory. Uh, we also work with Walmart. Uh, for them, the center of life is the retail store. So we call it the Retail Verse. Uh, and the store is the center and the distribution center is secondary and offices are kind of third. <laughs> so, yeah, you're exactly right for me. Yeah, and, in, and, and in each of those cases, there are there are different there are different pressures and there are different futures. Right. And there are different technologies. You know, as a former retail CEO, you know, we were trying to there are technologies we were developing both for the stores, you know, automation right. and AI, but also for the distribution centers and all of that. And so all of this work that you're doing is really, really important in order to a improve productivity, but but also to meet the needs of future customers. That's right. That's right. And that's where the focus should be, the needs of future customers and the needs of workers and and the need of the company, the need of the company to perform and be productive. Right. A multi-stakeholder world. All right. So back to the office, though. You said that the traditional offices, and I think you were, you were trying to be provocative in all this, uh, traditional offices were unfair, uncomfortable, uncreative, and unproductive. Wow. That's a lot of uns. <laughs> Why did you say that? Um, well, the way we said it actually was many uh, traditional, and we said many old-fashioned officers were all of those things, and that's certainly true. Um, that the challenge now is how do we take something that wasn't working all that great to begin with, and there, there's trade-offs. I mean, there's great office buildings and there's awful ones. We have a whole history in the book about the history of uh, the creation of offices. And basically the history of it isn't pretty. I mean, they were attempts to turn office workers into factory workers <laughs> and to turn them into cubicle workers. And it was very hierarchical, very slow moving. And you walk into many offices and everybody looks alike, uh, dresses alike, acts alike. <laughs> it's not exactly a mecca for diversity. And yet, if you think future back, the world is going to be diverse, you know, whether we want it to be or not. And we need a way to mix the familiar and the different. And what we're saying, most of the conversation in, in the COVID period has been, well, when can we go back to the office? And we're saying that's a good question. Um, but for us, it's number six out of a list of seven questions that we ask in order. And the first question is, why do you need an office at all? Now, there are good answers to that question. Um, so I'm not writing off all offices. Um, there's good answers to that. Um, but it should be a question asked, Steve, not an assumption made. And the answer to the question is, based on the research, the answer to the question is very clear. In-person meetings and offices are better for orientation, for trust building, for renewal, for early stage creativity and for culture building, especially for young people. So when you're a young person, I, being there in person is really important for mentoring and for culture building. But if you 
say that and then ask, well, do our current offices do that? I talked to the CEO of a big company in the Midwest just last week, and I, and I said exactly what I said now. Offices should be for orientation, trust building, renewal, early stage creativity, uh, and culture building. And he, he, he was in his office, and he kind of looked around, and he said, you know what, Bob, our office isn't very good for any of those things. <laughs> well, I think this is the point. You know, I, so, you know, when people, you know, hear these things about, you know, we got to get, you know, do away with offices, yada, yada, yada. And, you, you know, you hear, yeah, it, that's not what you're saying. What you're it's so not. I think this is really important that people understand your distinction here. And I think that the historical um, point that you made was really relevant, which is the office, you know, in the, in the 50s and 60s, offices were a sea of desks. Everybody had a desk. <laughs> they were all lined up in a big room. And it looked, you know, like a factory floor, you know, for, you know, office work, but the whole world has changed. And, you know, we're not, you know, we're not manufacturing, you know, all of the stuff that, that used to be done, you know, by hand is automated and, and done by computers. And so therefore we're in a knowledge-based world. And yet, I think your point here is, and yet we've only, you know, moved the office a, a, a tiny bit, you know, in that structure. So if you think future back, meaning, you say, what, what does the future look like? And then work back to how do we get there? The, the office, you're saying that the office environment, the way we do things, our processes, as well as the physical environment, don't meet those needs. Right? That's right. That's that's right. And what and what I'm saying is we've got a great opportunity. And you know, early on, this was this was called the Great Resignation. Um, then it was called the Great Reset. Lately, it's been called Quiet Quitting. Um, we're really more optimistic than any of those terms. We're calling it the Great Opportunity. <laughs> it's a great opportunity to rethink how we work, where we work when we work and even why we work. Uh, and to us, that's a that's a great opportunity, but it does take some rethinking. I mean, there's there's big challenges here for corporate real estate. Uh, my co-author is Joseph Press, who's an architect by training, an architect with a PhD from MIT. Uh, and he uh, was an early workplace architect that later kind of evolved into digital transformation work. Uh, so he's really into the blended reality world. And I think that's where everybody needs to be. I don't think in-person meetings are going to go away, and I don't think they should. Uh, in a real sense, the more digital we become, the more we're going to value in-person. But the in-person's got to be good, and it's got to be in an interesting place that provokes our interaction, that provokes our orientation, that provokes our trust building. And we can just do a lot better than the old-fashioned office. We're talking about the future of the office verse. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. As you and your company monitor the volatile and uncertain economy, the award-winning forecast team at the conference board predicts a downturn by the end of 2022. Recession will further compound the crises that have recently upended expectations from a deadly pandemic to a war in Ukraine and the highest inflation in decades. Yet, Unprecedented crises also present unforeseen opportunities if you have a trusted, proven navigator by your side. With that in mind, and as the conference board has always done, we are providing you with daily, timely, and relevant content that will guide the business community through the economic storm. These trusted insights are being gathered on our website and are available to help your company master the challenges. To find out how you can chart a course for the future which will allow your business to emerge stronger on the other side, 
visit our free economic hub entitled Navigating the Economic Storm, Your Indispensable Guide Through the Global Recession, located at conference-board.org slash topics slash recession. Welcome back to CEO Perspectives. I'm your host, Steve Odlin, the CEO of the Conference Board, and I'm joined today by author and futurist Bob Johansson. So, Bob, before the break, we were talking about office, the office is a physical place, office sing, and then the office first, all of all really interesting terms. But your book also talks about the use of AI and also other technologies that will rev- revolutionize all of that office as a, as a noun verb and uh, you know, a future place. So talk about how AI and technology will revolutionize offices. Sure. Um, in the book, we look at the history of AI. And you know, my whole career is focused on the social and the human side of tech. Um, the worst term for an emerging technology I've ever studied, and I grew up in Silicon Valley, the worst term I've ever studied is artificial intelligence. It was just a bad term right out of the gate. Now, there was a conversation, and that term was coined like 65 years ago, so it was a really old term. Uh, There was a discussion, I'm told, I wasn't there, there was a discussion about calling it augmented intelligence instead of artificial intelligence, and they made the wrong choice. And as futurists, we see if you get your language right, it draws you toward the future. If you get the language wrong, you fight the future. Artificial intelligence is just a bad term because it forced us into this humans replacing um, or computers replacing humans trap. Um, What's going to happen over the next decade is we're going to be augmented, whether we like it or not. The question is, and this is a profound question, what do humans do best and what do we want to keep for ourselves? And what do computers do best and how do we want to be augmented? So uh, we wrote this chapter on augmentation using one of the latest uh, speech modeling AI programs uh, called called GPT-3. And we actually used it to write because for me personally, I write books. Uh, This is my 13th book. I'm going to keep going. If I'm going to be a big time writer 10 years from now, I'm going to have to be augmented. I realize that. We're all going to have to be augmented, Steve. We're all going to be cyborgs, <laughs> whether we like it or not. We're all going to be augmented. But we get the choice of what it is we want to keep to ourselves and where we want to be augmented and how we want to be augmented. So the whole question of offices, officing, and the office first, it's going to be wrapped in the power, the power of augmentation. And our challenge is how to make that a good thing and not a bad thing. And in the in the chapter, we talk about the trade-offs. We refer to Shoshana Zuboff's wonderful work about the risks associated with this. So there's real risk, but I, I think a much greater opportunity. And we refer in the book to Tom Malone's work at MIT about superminds. Now that's a great term. Uh, AI is a bad term. Uh, superminds is a great term. And what Tom says is the big story of the next decade is not computers replacing humans. The big story is humans and computers doing things together that have never, never been done before. Yeah, I think this is a really important thing. You know, AI has been translated. It doesn't work, as you said. And so people are saying, well, it's machine learning. That doesn't work either um, (laughs) because these are tools and it's not meant to replace people. It's meant to augment, as you're saying. Um, And, you know, I, I 
I've been using the term autonomous or augmented innovation because, you know, for AI, because it's essentially why do you do it? You know, you don't, because it doesn't address the why. It just says, here's, you know, you know, you plug stuff into a computer. Well, why would you ever do that? You do it in order to, you know, to vault forward uh, and, and innovate in, in, you know, in, in ways that are faster and, um, you know, and, and done, you know, more productively than, you know, a group of humans sitting in an, you know, sitting around an office. So mm-hmm. I think this is a really important point. I wish people get away from this AI thing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, we're sort of forced into it now. And the, the popularity around uh, chat GPT that just happened a few weeks ago and the people trying that out and also trying out these um, visual models like Dali or Midjourney. We actually used Midjourney in creating one of the images in our book where you're entering text, but it, a visualization comes out. It's basically augmented art. Um, I think it's getting practical enough that everyday people and and especially everyday leaders uh, can try it out and and get a sense of of the implications. You know, this is kind of, uh, you know, the intersection of science, social science. It is. And physical science. It is. And, and I, you know, you didn't exa- I don't know that you had, you articulated exactly that way. But, you know, when people talk about, well, there's settled science, it's like, well, you know, that's an oxymoron. There's no such thing, and and that's true as it relates to social science and physical science. And and so this marriage here, I think, if you look at it in the narrow term of AI, it it forces you down a funnel, and I think it limits right possibilities. That's that's exactly right. And yeah. and what what we're doing here is to think about the future of work, the future of office work in particular, across seven spectrums of choice. So we're not telling people what to do. We're just saying, here's the external future forces like the now a trend toward augmentation. Here are those external big waves of change. And we're trying to help people decide, do you want to ride the wave? Uh, But at least how do you avoid getting hit by it? (laughs) And you can really get hit by this one. Uh, And for top leaders, like we're talking to right now, um, you know, all top leaders are going to have to be digitally savvy. That's already true, but it's going to be a price of entry 10 years from now. You know, the other thing you talk about is the agile office. And, you know, I don't know if you like the term agile or not. I think it's overused. And, you know, it's one of these buzzwords that at some point you want to run out of the room screaming. Uh, Please don't say it. But, you know, the the point is you're you're talking about that CEOs are trying to figure out how to create the agile office. So in in that term, what is an agile office and, and what do you think they should create? Yeah. So to me, agility means future ready. Uh, It means the ability to practice in low-risk ways so when you're faced with a challenge, you're able to respond in a in an agile way. And you know, I I you know am an athlete. I kind of grew up playing basketball, and uh, I got a basketball scholarship to Illinois, and I played in the Big Ten. I wasn't good enough to be a pro, but the lessons of athleticism and being of athletics they apply here too. We have to be agile. Uh, now, more recently, I'm I'm not a military guy by background, but I happened to be at the Army War College, the graduate school for the Army, the week before 9-11. And I got introduced there to their concept of the VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And I think that's a good way to frame the next decade. It's going to be VUCA and more VUCA. <laughs> it's not going to get less. It's going to get more VUCA. Now, you have to be agile. 
You have to be a corporate athlete. You have to be able to respond. Um, in my work with the War College now, I've been promoted and I, I get the new three-star generals, five at a time. They read my books uh, and then we work on the future, kind of get, taking a future back view of leadership and strategy and in the world of warfare. And agility is so critical for them and it's life and death. So I've turned out I am cautious about athletic metaphors and uh, military metaphors in business, but they're, they're ahead of us. They're ahead of us in business. And I'm trying to take the lessons of the military and bring them back. And agility is the seventh spectrum of choice for us. In other words, it's what ties it all together. We have to be corporate athletes. We have to be physically, mentally, even spiritually, not necessarily religiously grounded, but we've got to be agile in our response. And it's not agile in the routine training school sense, but agile in the sense of the special forces. You know, we, we need to be like special forces people as leaders in order to thrive in this world. Well, this whole VUCA thing, you know, the, the volatility, the uncertainty, this is scary to people. And, and it so, is. you know, when, when, whenever, and so, you know, you and I have been around for, uh, a long time. And, you know, remember early in our careers when we would hear a similar terminology used, you'd, you know, it was frightening. But now looking back over the past four or five decades um, of experience, it, it seems like this is the same, con you know, it's a constant in life that there's always progress. And if you looked at any decade, you know, in, in history, it's probably similar where there, you know, obviously the future is uncertain, um, but it's volatile. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of moving parts. And I think all I think you know at its core, what you're saying here is you can't just build a fixed set of strategies, a fixed office, physical office. You can't a fixed set of processes because the world is dynamic and you've got multi-stakeholders. And so it's that complexity you have to be prepared to um, you know, not only react to, but lead in 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 how you're you're meeting needs. Is, is that a fair summary? It, it definitely is. And, and you're right. Uh, VUCA world is not new. Beginning from the fact that we all have to die, uh, life has always been a VUCA world. <laughs> but what's happened is the scale has broadened now. Now we're dealing with a global VUCA world with things like climate crises and terrorism and uh, kind of issues that are now global in scale that used to be more local or more, more regional. So we just have to learn how to not only get get used to it and kind of survive, but how to how to thrive in that kind of world, and that's basically what we're teaching as futurists. What the military did was teach us also about wargaming, uh, and how it's possible when you're facing a VUCA world to game it, to practice in low risk ways, and that's what scenario planning is all about. And and here, this is a really important point, Steve. I think young people who grow up with gaming. Uh, are going to be more ready to thrive as leaders in the corporate world than those who don't. I actually think kids are going to have a competitive advantage if they play the right games. Uh, so the question is, how do, the, how do you develop your skills as a gamer uh, and then apply that to leadership in, in the VUCA world? And, and I'm not saying, I know today's video games drive parents crazy because they're often too sexual and too violent. I agree. But if you go there with your kids and realize that what we call video gaming today, 10 years from now, it's going to be the most powerful learning medium in history. And you're going to have to be a gamer to be able to prepare for the VUCA world. 
Yeah, I, well, they're going to have better hand-to-eye coordination for sure. <laughs> for sure. But, but you know, the, that the gaming notion is really is really interesting because you know if you go back to the even the the '60s and the '70s, there were scenario plannings, and you know you would. I remember the big games you used to do with yeah. you know in an academic setting where you would have everybody. You oh know, yeah. Put in scenarios, and then you know you'd go run it overnight, and then you'd come back and see right you know, who's winning. But I, I think I think at the core, what you're saying is you've got a dynamic, an unknown, uncertain future. OK, you always do. How do you plan for that? And so you can either stick your head in the sand and just say, we're going to look we're going to you know, we're going to drive the car by watching the rearview mirror and eventually we'll hit something. Uh, or we can look through the windshield and try to try to work it out through the possibilities. You call it, you know, scenarios, gaming you know, what war games, I mean, you know, all, whatever the metaphor is, is, is your point. You've got to look at these scenarios and, and you've got to make sure that you're prepared for all of these yes. possibilities. Yes, that's correct. And I think here it's important to distinguish between planning and foresight. You know, planning, you do have to do from the past to the present and then to the next and to the future. Planning is more linear and it has to be at some level. What I'm talking about is strategic foresight which is thinking 10 years out and working back. And what you're searching for there is your clarity. And what works from a strategic point of view in the VUCA world is to be very clear where you're going, but very flexible about how you execute within that cone of certainty. And you can't be certain. You can't be certain. So you've got to, be, you've got to figure out how to elevate and develop your clarity, but moderate, moderate your certainty. Yeah, you know, and everything you've talked about, you know, you, you've put it in the context of, of business planning. But, you know, for our listeners, it also applies to personal planning, you know, as it you does careers and it personal does. life, right? And, and because you've, you've, got, you've got 40, 50 years uh, and you really should be thinking through in the same way. How, what does the end look like? What do I want to have accomplished? How do I get there? All of those things apply. You're definitely right. And actually, uh, financial planning for individuals is a really good way to think about future back because you have to think future back. And most of us aren't very good at imagining our future self (laughs) and, and planning for that and thinking future back. But that's exactly what good financial planners do. Bob Johansson, great talking to you about the future. Yeah, I wonder if we could close just as a review here of these seven spectrums of choice around office shock. And we've touched on all of them, but we put them in the book in order. And it all begins with purpose. You know, why an office at all? Then outcomes. What are the outcomes you're seeking? And we go deeper on the climate impact outcomes because it's so important over the next decade. Then fourth, we ask the question of how do you create a culture of belonging? in an increasingly hybrid work environment. Then we ask the question, the really good question you ask about augmentation, how do we wanna be augmented as we go forward? Then we get to the question everybody's asking, which is um, when do we go back to the office and how do we do virtual work? And, And again, that's important question, but it's six out of seven in our list. And then the seventh question is agility. How do we pull it all together with agility? And that's our biggest challenge. How to, how to flip the COVID crisis into an opportunity to work better and indeed to live better. That's a great wrap up. So Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for what you're doing. And thanks to all of you for listening in to CEO Perspectives. Every week I'll be joined by a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time. 
We'll cover the leading topics in geopolitics, economics, public policy, human capital, and more. Please share CEO perspectives with your colleagues, with your friends, with your relatives. I know they're going to want to listen. I'm Steve Odlin, and this podcast has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You've been listening to a podcast from the Conference Board, the indispensable ally that has helped businesses through war, recession, and economic transformation for over 100 years. As recent unexpected economic challenges persist, you can chart a course for the future, which will allow your business to emerge stronger on the other side. Just visit our free economic hub entitled Navigating the Economic Storm, your indispensable guide through the global recession, located at www.conference-board.org slash topics slash recession.